Psalms of Ascent, and we're in Psalm 133, which is probably one of the shortest ones. Psalm 134 is pretty short as well, and, and some have said that um, they may have been linked together as one psalm, as um, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are also sought, thought to be uh, linked together, and uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as well. But uh, we're in Psalm 133, it's a short one, um, so let's read along. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes, it is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, for this time together. And as we look at this psalm, help us to understand the principles therein, what David, the author, was kind of alluding to and pointing at and how we can uh, benefit from this. Please guide me as I preach your word. I pray that your word, that my words would be your words and that your words would go forth in power and precision to, to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so, so we've been going through the songs of ascents. We remember that those were these pilgrim songs that they... Um, would sing, but uh, maybe oftentimes uh, more likely recite to one another as they were uh, traveling to Jerusalem um, from all over Israel or outside of Israel um, on their way to worship at uh, one of the feasts, the appointed feasts three times a year, the Feast of Booths, the Passover, or um, the uh, Feast of uh, First Fruits. Um, that they would gather um, to worship as, as the Lord had told them through Moses. And as they traveled, they sung these songs, they recited them to one another, they encouraged one another, they shared life together along the ways. And uh, as David, he writes this song, and um, we don't really know the the context is many of the psalms. Um, some of them we can kind of guess and we can give a good educated guess. But we, we read in this short psalm just the, the theme and the topic of unity. And how, how David uh, uh, points to unity and fellowship and, and um, speaks about, about how great it is. And it, you know, when we think of the context of gathering to worship, of the songs of ascents, uh, we, we can think of the relief of leaving behind trials and challenges of in, in your hometown or your wherever um, the Israelites were, were living. Um, and just, the, you know, if it was not for persecutions that were there facing, just the normal trials and challenges of life. And just the... the anticipation of going to worship in, in Jerusalem at the temple to um, uh, experience this uh, fellowship of, uh, of their kinsmen 
of other Israelites, of um, perhaps other faithful believers. Um, this ideal community of worship, of fellowship, of love, justice, security, um, almost like going on a vacation. And uh, even though it was an appointed feast and they were called to go and they were called to obey the feast and there are times in Israel's history in which they did not obey the feasts and uh, we don't know all the aspects of uh, each particular person or family or how faithful they were, but we know that there were times when they did not um, obey these commands to gather. And, uh, and for those that did, I'm sure they, they looked forward to it. It was like going on a vacation um, to leave their home for a bit and go to Jerusalem. And David, almost as he writes this psalm, it's almost as if he uh, describes the, the perfect gathering or the ideal gathering um, at one of these feasts. And he says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That's really what the whole psalm is about. It's about unity, about this grace of unity, of, of being together, of being one with, with each other. And, and in this song, in this psalm, we see um, really uh, there's two main descriptions of unity as he um, illustrates what unity is like. But um, we could really see three descriptions and, and easily uh, divide it up in verses 1, 2, and 3, the three descriptions. Um, but in looking at this psalm and the, the topic and theme of unity... I not only want to look at what the psalm says in these descriptions and these illustrations, but take it a bit further with a couple points of application. So we're going to look at this psalm in three points, what unity is described as in verses 1, 2, and 3. And then we're going to look at two points of application, what unity is developed by, what promotes unity, and then what unity is diminished and destroyed by, what, um, what destroys unity. So first, let's look at what unity is described as. The whole psalm, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And right off he describes unity as a blessing. Unity is described as a blessing. He says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And it's almost as if um, he's alluding to the fact that this is not the norm. It should be the norm, but oftentimes it's not the norm. But he says how good and pleasant. It is good in the sense that qualitatively good. This is almost just pure goodness. This is how it's supposed to be. As God is good, uh, unity um, amongst believers is good. And there's also a sense that he qualifies that, um, that it's unity amongst believers. When he says brothers, it is, it is good. And it is it is pleasant in, in the sense that it, it, it's not just something that's good as if um, 
you know, right or wrong, sort of, that's a good thing to do, but it's pleasant, it's delightful, it's pleasing, it's um, something that you desire. It's a blessing in every way when brothers dwell in unity, when there is unity amongst believers, when there's unity amongst a church. And um, I'm sure for many of you who have been believers for a while, um, you have experienced times in church life where there wasn't unity. And in fact, um, you know, it's sad to say that um, there are many times where there isn't. And it's rare that there is true unity. Um, it's easier in a smaller body, but the larger you get, you get more people, more opinions, more personalities, more um, perspectives. And it's almost harder to maintain unity. But unity is, is something that is desired, and it's a blessing. Second, he, you, he describes unity as an anointing. As an anointing in verse 2, it says, It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And, and even for, for us who, even for those of us who, you know, we are well-versed in the Bible, we know the Old Testament, we know um, a lot about um, the history of the Jews and uh, just the anointing, the oil, it still seems, it still may seem a bit weird. Like, this is good. It, it's, you know, unity is good. It, it's like oil on the head. And, and I, don't, I don't think, I would be surprised if any of you have put oil on your head. And just naturally, I, I know some people that I've met some believers who have tried it just because they've read so much. And they're like, maybe that's good. <laughs> maybe I'll try some olive oil on my head. <laughs> and, um, but we know from the scriptures that it's not just olive oil on the head and, and it's not just um, something that's good for the head, but this is the special oil, the oil that was used and made um, for consecration, for worship. We can read this in Exodus 30. So turn with me to Exodus 30 for a moment just to, to look at this just to get kind of a, a bit of a context and an understanding of this oil that David is, is talking about. And, and not so much the nature of the oil. It's not so much the nature of the oil that is important, but its purpose. That's, that's what makes it important. That's what helps us in this illustration is to understand the purpose for the oil. And so Exodus chapter 30 is um, God is speaking to Moses and giving him instructions about worship, about the tabernacle, about every, all the pieces of furniture and, and how um, they are to worship him. And he says to him in Exodus 30 and verse 22, he says, uh, The Lord said to Moses, <clears throat> Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, Half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hint of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and 
and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may, be, may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. So we not only see the recipe of this oil, this anointing oil, we see its purpose and we see its importance. That it's holy, it's not to be used for any other use, not to be used by any other person. And throughout the scriptures we can read about olive oil, you can read even in background commentaries that olive oil was important. Olive trees were uh, a very important produce. Olive oil throughout the whole ancient world was used for many purposes and it was really important. It was a really important commodity, um, whether in food or baking or, or even medicine. It was used to, we hear about that the parable of the Good Samaritan and oil pressed on the wounds or, um, you know, oil to rub out wounds. And, and there's good, um, good uses for olive oil. And that's why um, God speaking to Moses says, it shall not be used for any other purpose, this special oil. There's only one purpose for this special oil. It's, it's for consecration. It's for worship. And this is the image that David is pointing to when he talks about unity. Unity is like an anointing. It's like, it's like a consecration for worship. It's like a prerequisite for worship. That there would be unity amongst the people of God, amongst believers. That they would be unified of one mind, of one heart. It's important. It's vitally important. It's a preparation for worship. It's an anointing. And this anointing, he talks about, you know, this precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And there's this picture of it, you know, just oil coming down Aaron on his priestly robes. He's, you know, anoint, being anointed as a high priest, consecrated for worship. And, uh, you know, it may seem kind of silly for us, like an oily <laughs> priest, you know, but he's being consecrated. And his beard, his head, like his robes, just oil. But, you know, as you read the recipe of the oil, there's, there's some scent to it. There's cinnamon, there's other aromatic cane, there's other. So, and he said it was to be mixed like a perfumer. So I'm sure it had a, a great smell to it. Whatever that smell was, <laughs> it was something that set him apart. And this is what unity is supposed to, it's supposed to set us apart. We're not to be like the world uh, full of gossip and slander and cynicism and backbiting and double-mindedness and manipulation and politicking. We're to be one, a diversity that is unified. It's a prerequisite for worship. And then he gets to the third picture, the third illustration. Verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, 
For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Unity is first described as a blessing, then as an anointing, and then now as the source of life. It's described as the source of life. And he uses the dew of Hermon. This is speaking of Mount Hermon, which is um, in the, probably the most northern part of Israel. Um, when we get closer to Syria and Damascus, um, the northern part of Israel, uh, above the Sea of Galilee, quite a bit um, north of the Sea of Galilee. And it's roughly you know, 9,000 feet in elevation. It's the highest point around. Um, it almost always has snow on it. Um, it is, uh, gets dew, it gets from the clouds, um, and that region of the area, uh, of the you know, Middle East, uh, for the most part, that region is uh, dry and arid, except for where there's high mountains, like Hermon, which always gets dew from the fog, from whether it's raining or not, there's moisture from the fog, from the clouds. And so because there's always dew, because there's always moisture, there's always vegetation. There's always uh, grass. There's, you could grow crops there. Um, maybe not too high, but you could grow crops there. It was, it was fertile. And what he's saying here is, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, which is can be kind of confusing because the mountains of Zion is where Jerusalem is. And they're two different parts of uh, Israel. But what he's almost saying here is it's as if the dew of Hermon is falling on the mountains of Zion. And there's uh, Old Testament scholars which say that um, when they look at the Hebrew and just the different verb forms and, and translating it and people go different ways, they, they say that would probably be the best translation. Not at, it is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, but almost as it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on, the Mount, on Mount Zion. I mean, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, that, that's a more arid area that rarely gets water. But he's saying here, David is saying that unity would be as if Zion, where the temple is, where Jerusalem is, would be continually fertile, continually lush. This is what the ideal uh, worship setting would be when there's unity in Jerusalem. But there's also a sense that he, he could also be describing the ten northern tribes. Um, after, uh, uh, and this was after David's life, um, but still there is a sense that um, many in Israel were north of Jerusalem. And when they would come, when they would come to Jerusalem for the feast, they would descend upon Jerusalem. They would all come down to Jerusalem as if um, the people from the north were falling upon Jerusalem. That's a, a, something, a, another aspect of what he may be getting at. But I think what he really means is, is the, the lush, fertile um, uh, environment of Mount Hermon that now descends upon the mountains of Zion, upon Jerusalem. And that's where he 
alludes to water, to dew as a source of life. Water was everything in Israel. Israel is put in a place in, in all of you know, the geography of Israel. If you study a little bit about the geography of Israel, there's implications to the people of God and where God had placed them. They were in a land bridge between um, two, you know, two of the large, actually three of the largest areas of ancient civilization between Egypt and Mesopotamia and then even uh, uh, Europe or, uh, or uh, Turkey, Asia Minor. And so there's trade routes going all through um, Palestine and Israel. And whoever could control Israel um, could control trade routes, could, you know, stood to make a lot of money for, through trade. Uh, and so um, Israel was always at the threat of conquest. Um, but more than that, there's, uh, it's just an arid, dry area that they, they need water to grow crops, water to survive. So it was important for them to have water. The source of life um, ultimately comes from water. So, um, you know, Jesus, in a sense, uses this illustration of water as a source of life, kind of to point towards um, uh, God's common grace. And on his Sermon on the Mount, he, as he talks, tells um, the disciples to pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. And he goes on, Matthew 5.45, he says, He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Because we all need rain. We all need sunshine. And not so much us, um, but our food. <laughs> our food needs rain and sunshine. And even more so in those days because, you know, they didn't, they didn't have, uh, it wasn't like our days where we just go to the grocery market. Yeah, our, all our food comes from a farm. It comes from somewhere. But we tend, most of us don't grow it. Um, and so they knew, they knew the importance of rain, the importance of dew. It was a source of life. But... More than that, it's not just a source of life that uh, David is alluding to in, in, in terms of illustrating the importance and the blessing of unity, but of everlasting life as well. Because he says uh, at the end of the psalm, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Life forevermore. That's where you go to worship. That's where um, you meet with God. That's where salvation can be known, as, as Paul said, that salvation is from the Jews because of the oracles of God, the, the revelation of God comes through the Jews. And so Mount Zion, uh, the temple, Jerusalem, that's where uh, people gathered to worship, the Jews gathered to worship, where um, the law and the prophets were read, where people could come to know about God, to learn about God, to seek God. To find everlasting life, which only comes from God through his word. As David says, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore, eternal life. This is an illustration of unity. There's also a sense that, you know, um, throughout the Bible we see uh, rain and dew and water, the importance of water. And Isaiah uses this, this same illustration. Oh, very similar. Isaiah 55. 
Yeah, I'm sure some of you have, have memorized this. Um, many of you know it. But as uh, Isaiah or God is speaking through Isaiah to his people, speaking about his word, about his promises, about his covenant, he says in Isaiah 55 and verse 10, And for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. He's talking about his covenant promises. He's talking about his word. He's talking about all the words of the prophets um, and even alluding to the gospel that goes out through the prophets. That it, his word shall not return to him void. And then he speaks a little bit about the millennial kingdom and the reverse of the curse. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. Instead of thorns and thistles shall be a fertile land, a fertile environment. And he uses this illustration of, of rain and snow that come down from heaven, that water the earth as his, his word. Similar illustration of what David uses to describe unity. It's a blessing. It's... It's like an anointing. It's the source of life. Source of life. In his commentary on uh, this passage, uh, Dr. Will Varner, he writes this. He says, um, It is one thing for a group of people to journey together to Jerusalem for a yearly festival, and something else for them to live together day after day. The accounts of Abraham and Lot, Isaac and his family, Jacob and Laban, and Joseph's brothers remind us that brethren do not always dwell together in unity. Unity must come down from above, like oil running down Aaron's beard and bathing the twelve jewels on the breastplate. It is also like the dew descending on Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan River, with its water eventually descending south through Israel. You can manufacture uniformity by manipulating people and exerting pressure, but true unity can come only from God by His Spirit. Unity is pleasant and produces a lovely fragrance like scented oil. It is good and produces fruitfulness like the dew. On the other hand, divisions among God's people produce strife and disorder. So we see in this, these few verses, David's illustrations of what Unity is described as it's a blessing, it's an anointing, it's a source of life. And now I'd like to um, take a, two points of application concerning unity, concerning this theme. Uh, first, what unity is developed by. How, how do we, you know, if unity is such a blessing, if unity is so important, how, how is unity developed? How do we develop unity? How do we maintain unity? And unity is first developed by truth and sound doctrine. By truth and sound doctrine. Because perfect unity is only found in the Trinity. That's the thing about, uh, 
about our God. He is triune. There's diversity and unity. Unity and diversity. He is one, and yet three persons. And there's a sense that that extends to the church. And he calls us all out of the world, different backgrounds, different personalities, um, different strengths and weaknesses, sins, um, failures, um, different ethnicities, all sorts of different demographics, and he makes us one, into one body, like, like he is. And it starts with truth, because God is truth, and sound doctrine that flows to us. Um, truth is that which accords with reality. It's, it's only, only truth can come through the word of God. We can see things that are true in the world. There's this sense of um, special revelation, God's word, and general revelation, those things in the world that we can see as true, um, you know, the weather patterns and things like physics and mathematics and, and certain things that we can observe and see true, but we, we, we can't observe them rightly without the word of God to tell us that it, it all comes from God. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, he says this in John 17, 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart. Sanctify them in the, in, in the truth. Your word is truth. And then he goes on, he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. He's praying, in a sense, for unity, for perfect unity with the people of God, with the church, and with him and the Father. And this starts with truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart in truth so that we all may be one. Unity starts with truth and sound doctrine. It starts with that which is objective, immutable, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, what the Word of God is. I like what A.W. Tozer has said. He's written this, and he says this. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. He says social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. It all starts with sound doctrine. We can only be truly unified if we're unified on sound doctrine and truth. I remember one time in, uh, when I was living in Bakersfield and I'm driving down the road and I saw the Unitarian Universalist Church. And uh, it was on their sign and, and uh, I've heard about people like that. Uh, they're just like, everybody's welcome. We don't care. We don't, you know, everybody's welcome. And, and you know, I, 
If I could put a subtitle on their sign, I, I would put this. We believe in everything and stand for nothing. <laughs> and it just, you know, there's, there's no truth. They, they, they want to seem all inclusive, all accepting, but that's not, it's not true unity. Unity must be developed by truth and sound doctrine. Second, it's developed by the Holy Spirit and its fruits. By the Holy Spirit and its fruits. In order to be one, we must be one with God, and that starts with regeneration, with being born again, with uh, illumination, the Holy Spirit opening up our eyes and our minds to see what is true, to reach out to God, to understand His Word, enabling us to even serve and, and love one another. And the fruits that are produced by the Spirit. Just as by way of reminder, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and, and this is how we develop unity, while we, how we maintain unity. It starts with sound doctrine, it starts with truth, it starts with submitting to the Word of God, but also by walking in the Spirit. By walking in the Spirit. And, uh, you know, after Paul is, is, you know, almost railing against the Galatians about following after uh, false teachers and Judaizers and legalism, and then he, gets, he, he comes down to Galatians chapter 5 and, and verse 13, and he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So how we maintain unity, how we develop unity by first beginning with sound doctrine and then by the Holy Spirit and its fruits and then um, by repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness in, in relation to God. Um, we, we come to God through repentance and faith. We are saved by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, but um, we continue to live lives of repentance and faith, continuing to repent from our sins and, and believe in Christ's sacrifice, to um, repent from our sins with, against one another. It's how we maintain relationship, how we develop unity is repentance and forgiveness in relation to God and then in relation to one another. And we need to be quick to repent and quick to forgive. As Jesus said, you know, Peter said, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? He says, I say 77 times. Um, as many as possible. 
And he, he, you know, Jesus was, in a sense, using a metaphor of hyperbole, like as many times as possible. If your brother continues to repent, continue to forgive. We develop and maintain unity by repentance and forgiveness, by, and then by grace and forbearance, by showing grace to each other, by giving grace and covering sin. Uh, is, uh, uh, love covers a multitude of sins, as Peter writes, um, showing grace to others, uh, forbearing with one another, those, those little sins that, that um, may not even really seem like sins, just being rude or, or whatever. You know, in every relationship, you've got to pick your battles. You can't point out every sin. That will just ruin your relationship. But there are some sins you do have to point out, and other things you just got to let go. You've got to show grace. You've got to... Um, show some forbearance. You gotta. Uh, also, we need to defer to others and uh, forget those failures. Let them go. Uh, fifth, love and service. Unity is developed by love and service. Love to God first, and then love to one another. The, the, the two great commandments: You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Pretty much all the Old Testament. What Jesus said and what Paul said, reiterated. Love and service. That's how unity is developed, by love and service. And lastly, by loyalty and commitment. Loyalty and commitment, they're almost synonyms for unity. That we are to be loyal first to God and then to one another. And committed first to God and then to one another. And it's almost as we look at love and service and loyalty and commitment, um, it's almost like the opposite of idolatry and blasphemy, the opposite of hatred and selfishness and pride. And so as we look at what unity is developed by, it's first truth and sound doctrine, the Holy Spirit and its fruits, repentance and forgiveness, grace and forbearance, love and service, Loyalty and commitment. And, and notice how all of these elements by which true unity is developed, they, they correlate with the gospel and salvation. Starts with the truth and with God and the gospel and then uh, uh, the Holy Spirit, his fruits, uh, the repentance and forgiveness, grace and forbearance, love and service, loyalty and commitment. I like what the Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote he, uh, about this passage uh, and about unity. Namely, um, he says this, Ah, were their souls fully assured that God had loved them freely and received them graciously and justified them perfectly and pardoned them absolutely and would glorify them everlastingly. They could not but love where God loves and own where God owns and embrace where God embraces and be one with everyone that is one with Jesus. It starts with God. And starts with the gospel and understanding who we are in God and, and, and being the people that God commands us to be. And so we see in Psalm 133 what unity is described as, the illustrations. And then we just looked at what unity is developed by, all those elements of the gospel. And now I want you to see what unity is diminished and destroyed by. Um, and not that I want to end on a sad note, and I won't, but um, we need to look at this. Uh, unity is, is diminished and destroyed by, first, lies and error. It's almost opposite of what it's developed by. 
is destroyed by lies and error. Anything contrary to God and His Word destroys unity. It destroys true unity. It creates divisions, heresy. Um, it's interesting if, um, you know, the, the term heresy um, quite literally means faction or division. Um, and uh, that's what happens when heresy is preached, when it's taught, it creates faction, it creates division. Anything contrary to God and his word create, diminishes and destroys unity. And it's ultimately from Satan. He's the father of lies and he um, promotes lies and promotes error. Anything that's contrary to God and his word. Charles Spurgeon uh, said this, he said, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Sow discord um, through lies and error. Anything that is contrary to God's word, anything that diverts, distracts, or deceives people from the truth, uh, is the lies and error that diminishes and destroys unity. J.C. Ryle, he says this, he says, um, Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. And there's a sense that we can, in the world, um, you know, what's popular in our day is diversity and inclusion. Manufactured um, external unity. But it's not true unity. It's without the gospel. It's not from the heart. And so it, it can't last. It's manufactured. It's not true. It's, it's built on lies and error. Second, what diminishes and destroys unity, true unity, is discord and division. Um, seems pretty uh, obvious. Discord and division destroys unity. It's the exact opposite. Putting one against another. You know, the old um, mom versus dad game that kids try to play <laughs> you know mom didn't give me what I want so I go to dad or I pit mom against dad or dad against mom um, that also happens in companies organizations and it happens in the church Proverbs says a lot about discord and disunity and lies and division Proverbs chapter 6 verse 12 says this a worthless person a wicked man goes about with crooked speech Winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. And this is, in the context of this, this is almost like a scam artist talking about money and scamming. Um, but nonetheless, he's double minded. He's, um, he's a con man. He doesn't say what he mean and he means, and he doesn't mean what he says. He's, he's sowing discord to earn something. And this is why it's vitally important for leaders to be united in, in whatever organization, but especially in the church. It's important for you to be united. It's important for parents to be united, to, to present a united front before their kids so that their kids don't divide them up and try to get what they want. Um, and this is, you know, one of the things in the list of those things which the Lord hates further down in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. You know, you ever want to know what God hates? You go Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. 
haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Discord and division. That's what unity is diminished by and destroyed by. Lies and error, discord and division. And then third, gossip and slander. Gossip and slander. And you think of gossip. We've all heard gossip before. Um, sometimes it's kind of hard to define. Um, gossip is spreading information which may be true, but it's not edifying. It's not relative. It's not pertinent. It's, it's not for you to hear or you to spread. It's none of your business, um, so to speak. Gossip is also the flip side of flattery. I've heard this. In, it's an it's, it's, um, easy way to understand gossip. Gossip is... is uh, Something you say about somebody that you would not say in front of them. Flattery is something you say to somebody that you would not say behind their back. It's kind of a positive thing that you would say in front to manipulate them, to flatter them, but you really wouldn't say it in private. Gossip, you say something um, in public that you would not say in front of that person. You're, You're spreading... Um, information, which though it may be true, sometimes it is, it's not edifying, it's not pertinent, it's none of your business. This is what the Bible calls a whisperer in Proverbs. Uh, uh, Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Did you hear this? You know what I heard? And, and it's, it's, it's hard not to share it. It's hard to restrain yourself because uh, even... Proverbs 18.8 says this, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. There's an alert to gossip. We've all, you know, we've all been there. We, we're probably, probably all of us are guilty of it at some point and guilty of hearing it. You hear somebody, you know, uh, a group of people talking or two people talking and, and you can't help but overhear their conversation and you linger around because, you know, this the words of a whisperer. They're just like, what are they saying? Who are they talking about? Are they talking about me? Are they talking about my friend? Are they talking about what something I did or something I didn't do? And these are words of a whisperer. And so gossip is, is something that you shouldn't do And it's something that you should avoid when it's being spread because it's the words of a whisperer. They're like delicious morsels and it's it's not edifying. It's not beneficial. It creates division and discord. And then slander, which is essentially character assassination. You know, even if it's true, it's assassinating someone's character. Defamation. Um, there's, There's lawyers who specialize in defamation. Defamation lawsuits. Um, you recently, um, there's been some young men um, in, in politics um, or it, it were pulled into the political sphere because of things they've done. And uh, um, they went, and because the, the media, the mainstream media, in a sense, uh, defamed their character because of news, and, and they have gone after the media and have won defamation lawsuits because their name was dragged through the mud. This is what slander is. 
And Proverbs 22, 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. It's, it's showing the, um, the value of a good reputation. And slander um, destroys that. See, unity is diminished and destroyed by lies and error, by discord and division, by gossip and slander, and fourth, by manipulation and subversion. Always trying to work things out to get your own way. Politicking and scheming. Uh, undermining the authority in the organization you're in, whether that's the church or, or your workplace or the family. Undermining the authority. And in the church, that could be you know, the, the Sunday school teachers, it could be deacons, it could be pastor, it could be um, scripture. Scripture is the final authority in the church. And uh, people can undermine it. They can subvert it, twist it. It's a false teachers and heretics subverting the scriptures within the church. Manipulation and subversion destroys, diminishes unity. Fifth, selfishness and pride. Thinking about the church only from the perspective of self. What I want to do, what I should do, what I think I'm good at, um, how other people see me. And this is probably the hardest thing, is be, thing to deal with. Uh, I mean, um, the unholy trinity, uh, selfishness, uh, pride, and unbelief. Things that all of us will struggle with for the rest of our life. And hopefully um, in lessening degrees, but there's still a sense of selfishness in all of us. We think of ourselves more than we think of anybody else. And even if we think about good things and good things to do, and even the church, uh, more often than not, we think of the church from the perspective of self. We think of, um, of God almost from the perspective of self rather than from God. Selfishness and pride um, destroys unity. Think about this, and, and you know, I read a portion of this, this letter this morning, a third John, talking about the missionaries and, and, and supporting missionaries. But he, um, John goes on in third John in, in verses 9 and 10. He says this, he says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Diotrephes, trying to, um, trying to take all the power within the church. This is selfishness and pride. Um, you know, I've heard <laughs> a couple pastors uh, Say, you know, you don't like, you don't want to be like that character Diotrephes. <laughs> you know, is just, and the reason why, you know, John names him because he knows that this letter will be read and he'll hear it before he comes and then he will confront him. Selfishness and pride. And then finally, that destroys and diminishes unity is disloyalty, mistrust, and suspicion. Disloyalty, mistrust, and suspicion, not, not being loyal. And, and uh, even uh, Jesus kind of alludes to this in uh, his Sermon on the Mount when, when he talks about um, oaths and uh, giving an oath, keeping an oath. 
And he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, be transparent, be loyal, be committed. Um, if you're loyal, if you're honest, if you're transparent, um, then people will trust you. You'll be trustworthy. There won't be any suspicion. If you commit to something, do it faithfully, without grumbling. And if you're unsure about whether you can do it or not, don't commit and don't communicate that. Um, you know, there, there's people that are so worried about their image that they, um, they communicate things that they're not able to commit to. They put on an, an image or an identity that is not real, it's not true, and, and then the, the uh, fallout of that is they develop a mistrust in others of them. They, um, people are suspicious of them. There's disloyalty. I think of, um, you know, in, in the Middle East, in my deployments, there was this issue with Afghans and Iraqis and as part of the Middle Eastern culture and, and of them not wanting to say no to anything uh, because there is an honor-shame culture. They don't want to say, no, I can't do that or no, I can't provide that for you or no, I won't, um, you know, in a, in a good way when they really can't do it. They, they, they want to um, seem like they can always meet the agenda, always meet the ex expectations, always fulfill the obligations when in reality there's many times they couldn't. And if you can't do something, be willing to say, no, I can't do that. I'm not able to. Um, you know, in fact, I'm not even talented enough to do that. <laughs> so don't trust me. And, and in saying, um, you, know, you know, you can't trust me to do X, Y, and Z, you're almost, in a sense, building trust with that because they know you're a person of your word. And if you can't do something, you're humble enough to say, no, I can't do that. And if you can do something, you'll commit to it and you'll go through. You're, you're loyal, you're trustworthy. And people won't be suspicious of you. You know, is Bob going to flake out on me again? I don't know. Will, will Susie really bring that bag that she said she would bring? Because last time she didn't. You know, that, that slowly chips away at unity. And uh, also, be honest, be transparent, be trustworthy. Don't play church politics. Avoid forming cliques. Treat everyone fairly, lovingly, and as more significant than yourselves. And it's, it's easier to say that and to... Um, commit to that in a smaller church because usually smaller churches are more spiritually healthy because usually they're more welcoming usually you can't hide but the bigger it's just people the bigger an organization gets the bigger a uh, uh, church gets then clicks start to form people birds of a fl feather flock together and and people start to avoid one another they start to divide. They start to manipulate and play church politics to gain position, to gain power, to gain notoriety. And it destroys unity. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, after um, speaking, um, giving instructions concerning wives and husbands in the church, he says this, 1 Peter 3, 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Humility. That's where unity ultimately comes from. Humility. Which understanding who you are before God. Because it comes from God. It's grounded in truth and trust and love. 
ultimately comes from God, um, but humility plays a big part in unity. You know, one of the greatest things about a brand new convert is that they usually don't know enough about church culture, culture and Christianity to be overly opinionated about anything except the gospel and salvation. They're, they just want to be at church and worship God. They just want to uh, tell people about God. They just want to be one. They want to be here. Um, but the more we grow and learn, um, there's, uh, there's a danger in learning more that we can become divided over. We need to maintain our unity. One pastor has said this. He says, the unity of the church is to be a reflection of the unity of the one God upon which the church is built. As God is perfectly unified within himself and we are perfectly unified in him and with each other in Christ, the church should model that oneness in all our actions. Church unity flows from the fact that we are bound to God and one another by the gospel. This is, this is what we should display. And, and if we display true unity founded upon God and the gospel and the people that he calls us to be, to be one with him as Jesus prayed that we would be one with him and the Father, then you know, perhaps someone could write a, a psalm about the church as David wrote here. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is to go to church where people are one, where they're unified. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 4, he says this, after explaining the gospel and then he gets into the applications of the gospel in chapter 4 and on, he says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are to be one. We are to be unified because God is one and he is unified and he calls us to be one And he shows us how by walking in humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So let's do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for this picture of unity. And we have to confess that many times we are not unified. Um even though maybe on the surface we seem unified, our hearts are not unified with one another. It's because more often than not, we are fixated on ourselves and what we want, what we think is best. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on you, to be fixated on who you are and what you call us to be, on your gospel, on on the darkness and the sin that you've called us out of to be a people of faith, to be one body united through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for calling us into one body and we pray for those of us that um, are here that do not truly know you. 
We pray that they may come to know you, that you may, you may shower your grace upon them, that they may be one with the rest of us. And Lord, help us to proclaim your gospel to others that they may be one as well. We thank you for your grace. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.